During the month of December, as we prepare for a new season of the Christian Atheist Podcast, we're presenting again some of the best of our early episodes for those who have more recently begun to listen. We would also point you to our Simple Gifts Podcast Christmas Programming. Listen to the full text of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol and some other Christmas favorites. We want to express our deepest gratitude to our faithful listeners, those who have stuck with us through all the complexity of thought and presentation in the past two years. Our commitment moving forward is a more down-to-earth and easier-to-understand presentation and content. Jenny and I wish you the merriest of Advent seasons in celebration of the birth of our Lord, and together with you aim at a new year in His service. The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at RomansChapter5 at Comcast.net. Welcome to the Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 14, Uriah, Job, and Frodo. I do not understand God and his way of doing things. As an atheist, too, I did not understand. And that lack of understanding was cause for doubt. It was also cause for something else, something far worse, for judgment. Such judgment, I contend, is actually at the root of much disbelief. I might even argue it is a default human response a natural affinity with our brother Cain. King David is called a man after God's own heart, and honored as the standard against which all of Judah's kings would be measured, the king from whose line the king of kings would come. There is much to commend David to our consideration, but his treatment of Uriah the Hittite is not one of them. Uriah and the Hebrew army were fighting David's battles while the king remained in Jerusalem. Seeing Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, David desired her and got her pregnant. To cover his sin, the king recalled Uriah from the battle in order that, sleeping with his wife, he would take David's child as his own. Uriah, however, was too loyal and honorable. 2 Samuel 11 Verses 10 and 11. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. When getting Uriah drunk also failed to achieve the desired effect, David had him killed, taking Bathsheba as his own. An act of faithlessness and betrayal hardly rivaled in literature and reminiscent of Judas's kiss. The man to be admired here is Uriah. David was a scoundrel, an adulterer, a murderer, a faithless betrayer of one of his own mighty men who served him faithfully, a king who abused his power. 
Yet in the Bible, Uriah is a mere footnote, largely forgotten. While David is celebrated, lauded, and praised, and called a man after God's own heart. What can we make of this? What sort of God is this? Job's plight, too, is troublesome. We are told that Job, quote, feared God and shunned evil, and that he constantly made sacrifice for his children in anticipation of possible waywardness on their part. God is so pleased with Job that he brags to Satan concerning him and allows Satan to afflict Job to test his mettle. Job loses everything. And his response? The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Then, Satan and God meet again. And Satan declares that Job still has his health, so God allows even that to be taken from him. Job, by God's own judgment, is as good a man as walks the earth, a faithful worshiper. Yet great evil befalls him at God's behest, and on a wager with Satan. Why? What sort of divine being would act so callously, so capriciously? In both of these instances, my visceral response is one of moral indignation, moral judgment. In the case of Uriah and David, I am offended by David's sin and at God's elevation of David to praiseworthy paragon of virtue, especially in contrast to his treatment of Uriah. Moral condemnation of David's sin is uncontroversial, as God, too, clearly condemns it and punished it severely. My moral condemnation, though, extends farther than this. I am offended that God would make an adulterer, a murderer, a faithless betrayer, an exemplar of his, quote, own heart. Why? In judging David's sin, I also judge David, finding him unworthy of God's title for him. I make myself David's judge. On what basis can I do this? Judging David's sin is simple and justifiable, as it falls short of the moral law, the objective standards that define good human conduct. But what does it take to fairly judge a person? It takes two things. One, comprehensive knowledge of both the objective conditions and subjective states of that person. And two, the moral authority to pronounce judgment. It takes righteousness. I clearly do not and cannot possess the first of these conditions, as an infinite, indeed pan-psychical knowledge would be required, and I am a finite being, defined more by my ignorance than by my knowledge, as Socrates delighted to point out. And as to the second condition, when I claim that David's sins are so egregious that God could not possibly be justified in calling him a man after God's own heart, I'm in an awkward position, since when I am honest with myself, I am guilty of all David's crimes. While I've never committed adultery, my heart has not been pure. While I've never betrayed and murdered someone, 
I have done things, and recently, that mirror such treachery. In short, I am too profoundly ignorant and limited and too inherently sinful myself to judge even a single human being. Until we see in our self-reflections all the sins which we so rightly recoil from in others, we have not yet seen a right. This is the real import of judge not, that ye be not judged. While we are competent, indeed commanded, to judge sin, the sinner is God's province, not ours. Turning our attention to Job, the problem gets even bigger, but also clearer. For the being I am now judging is God, the great I am. Or, from an atheistic perspective, if you prefer, being itself, the whole of reality. As Job makes clear, such judgments are simply beyond what a man can rightly claim. To judge everything would require a comprehensive understanding of everything, a universal position from which one might judge, not to mention a position of true moral superiority. To judge another, to judge God, I must set myself up as an ideal. We human beings do claim this position, and quite often. It is the pathology of Cain. In particular, I will argue in future editions of The Christian Atheist that we are today awash in a philosophical tradition, Hegelian absolute idealism, in which this position is the defining characteristic. Job, having flirted with this rational pathology in the midst of his sufferings, took the higher path. Job 42, 3-5 Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. If I am to believe in justice in an objective sense, whether or not I believe in God, I must also believe that it is a much bigger matter than my limited understanding can clarify for me, that the position of judge escapes my grasp. I can never rightly claim this position. Before that infinite knowledge and righteousness, I can only see myself for the limited and faulty being I am. All else is willful ignorance an arrogant, often malicious self-deception. I can, however, and we all do, arrogate this position, God's position, each time I pass judgment on another. When I judge God, or being, I am claiming the place of infinite judge for myself. Paradoxically, it is the image of God, the spark of the divine in humanity, that endows us with this capacity of judgment. Endowing us with rationality, with free will, God allowed us the possibility of turning against our own best interest, our highest purpose. The loss of innocence in the garden began with, hath God said? Intellectual pride is often the foundation of atheism 
and of a panoply of human tragedy, and this case of moral condemnation is a version of that arrogance. In condemning God, we take to ourselves the impossible position of infinite knowledge. In denying God, we become God. It is not so easy to deny the divine. While as an atheist I would have rejected this understanding, I now believe that God is not dispensable. For human beings, some thing, or some one, always fills the void. There is no human existence without a supreme value. Faith is not optional. The problem here is that we are not looking carefully enough at our own reflections in the looking glass. We are not being honest with ourselves about what we know or who we are. As Socrates made clear, acknowledging our limitations, knowing that we do not know, is the starting place of wisdom. The Bible says it theistically, but it's the same message. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Frodo, in Lord of the Rings, exemplifies our issue in a conversation with Gandalf. What a pity that Bilbo did not stab that vile creature Gollum when he had a chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand, replied Gandalf. Pity and mercy, not to strike without need. And he has been well rewarded, Frodo. Be sure that he took so little hurt from the evil, and escaped in the end, because he began his ownership of the ring so with pity. A proper pity comes from the recognition of one's own finitude, one's kinship with other fallible and limited beings. It results from accepting our ignorance and moral failings and looking beyond them towards a more perfect standard against which everything about us, including ourselves, falls short. I am sorry, said Frodo, but I am frightened, and I do not feel any pity for Gollum. You have not seen him, Gandalf broke in. No, and I don't want to, said Frodo. Frodo's position here of willing ignorance is that of each of us when we pass judgment on others. We want God's position. To deny our own ignorance and moral deficiencies as it makes us feel superior to the other fallible and limited beings surrounding us. By our own standards, we are better than those we judge. Frodo makes this clear when he hears that Gollum is probably a hobbit, like himself. I can't believe that Gollum was connected with hobbits, however distantly, said Frodo with some heat. What an abominable notion! Frodo continues his conversation with Gandalf. I can't understand you. Do you mean to say that you and the elves have let him live on after all those horrible deeds? Now at any rate, he is as bad as an orc and just an enemy. He deserves death. Gandalf exclaims. Deserves it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death and some that die deserve life. 
Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. Notice that Frodo's exclamation is actually a moral condemnation, not just of Gollum, but also of Gandalf and the elves for not dealing out Frodo's judgment upon Gollum. It is a moment of extreme arrogance, of godlike pretensions, but it is also a moment of honest outcry. I can't understand you. Gandalf's response is to push Frodo back upon his finitude. As you have no power, divine power, to give life to those who deserve it, so also you lack both the righteousness and the knowledge of God that entitle him to judge. It is our limitations that define us in place and time, in what we confront let go, take up. If we willingly take up our finite burden, our cross, for Frodo, the ring, totalitarian desire, the desire to be God, while recognizing our limitations, we are in a position to learn, grow, and progress towards the infinite through our finitude. Intellectual arrogance self-righteous judgment, these are shortcuts to the infinite, yielding disastrous consequences. Witness the totalitarian ideologies of the 20th century. That David is a man after God's own heart is a call that only God can make. God's judgments are fully informed. We know but little, and even that in a glass darkly. If you are an atheist, the same prohibition applies. If there is no God, you still know nearly nothing about the world, its people, and their experiences. You cannot know that there is no God. I cannot know there is. But I choose belief in a good God, a supreme architect of our cosmos. For both of us, Belief passes beyond knowledge. Stepping back through the looking glass to a belief in God required me to answer, I don't know, to all sorts of questions. And to be okay with that. It requires me to accept my ignorance, to refrain from judging others on its basis, and say alongside Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I still don't understand God and his way of doing things. And that's okay with me. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason 
respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.